Thank you, Serena, for that Bible reading. What a remarkable story. Good morning, everyone. My name's Haran. If you haven't met me, and it's my, um, my privilege to be able to um, preach God's word this morning. Uh, how about we pray before we get started? Please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this story, this true story of the remarkable things that the Lord Jesus did while on earth. And Father, we pray that you would make your word living and active today, this morning. Holy Spirit, would you help the word to cut, cut to our heart, cut to our soul, Help us to see it afresh, even if this is a story we've heard a hundred times before. Father, would you make it come alive for us? And would you help us to appreciate how amazing our Lord Jesus is and what he does and what he's able to do? Father, we pray that for the next, next half an hour that we'd be able to put aside the cares and concerns of the world and focus on the things that matter, focus on the things that you have to say to us, Father, pray for me that you'd help me to speak clearly. And um, Father, we pray that these words would be helpful. And Father, we pray for all of us that you would help us to be not only hearers of the word, but doers also. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Have you ever wondered what it'd be like if somebody made a movie of your life? Now... I don't think, I don't think I'm going to end up famous. Thank you. Now, I don't think I'm going to end up famous, and that's okay with me. I don't think anyone is really genuinely going to make a movie of my life. Um, And they wouldn't because, to be honest, my life is pretty boring, right? I roll out of bed, feed the kids breakfast, drive them to school. We edit out all the bits where I have to scream at them to get ready for school. Go to work, typing, that's all I do. Go make some coffee, that's the highlight of my day. Do some more work, go get more coffee, rinse and repeat. It wouldn't really make for interesting viewing, right? That's, that's my life. Which is a shame because my last name is just perfect for puns and I can just imagine now how around the untold story. See it now, it's unmissable. It's unforgettable. But they wouldn't make a movie of my life because the movies that you see on the silver screen are really, they tend to focus not on boring, ordinary, everyday people, but they focus on desperate people in desperate situations, right? I mean, you might start the movie as just an ordinary guy, but then your daughter gets kidnapped, and then suddenly you're Liam Neeson in Taken. And never mind the fact that before he was an ordinary guy, he used to be a Green Beret. Or I might be an ordinary guy, and then my wife dies, and that's really sad. And then some idiot kills my dog. And then I remember that I'm a trained assassin, and then I go and murder his entire family, and that's John Wick. You're out with a friend, you're dancing, a few drinks. But then this guy tries to rape you, so your best friend shoots him. And then you're Thelma and Louise, and you're on the run to Mexico because you don't want to go to jail. Or maybe, I'm just a quiet farm kid. But then one day my adopted family is murdered. And then I'm told my dad is one of the most evil people in the universe. And also I can do this magic thing called the Force. Obviously I need to save the universe from my dad. 
and then I'm Luke Skywalker, I'm in Star Wars. Right? Interesting movies are about desperate people in desperate situations because desperate people do desperate things. And that makes for interesting viewing. Right? Our story today is about two desperate people in two desperate situations. And the most desperate thing that they can do is turn to Jesus. And it will make us ask the question, well, how desperate are our lives? And how desperate do they need to be? And what can Jesus do for us in our time of need? I want to start our sermon with a walk through this story. I want to poke around at some of the details, make a couple of observations. And then based on the passage, I want to talk about what does Jesus do for us? And then, well, how do we need to approach Jesus? So if you're taking notes, it's a classic three-point outline. Bible, then Jesus, then us. Sorry, it doesn't alliterate. I couldn't figure out how to make that work. So let's take a look at the passage and pay attention to God's word. Um, So here's the context for our passage. Context is important. Mark chapter 1. Jesus says, I'm on a mission to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 2, Jesus shows everyone he's got the power to heal. He heals the paralytic. He heals um, Peter's mother-in-law. He heals other people besides. Mark chapter 4, Jesus has the power um, power over the wind and the waves and the forces of nature. Mark chapter 5, Jesus has power over demons and over Satan himself. And now he will show us that he's got the power over sickness and death. Now, in all of these miracles, Jesus is giving us the first fruits, the very first taste of what this kingdom of God that he's proclaiming, what is this going to be like? What will eternity be like for us? That's really important because, as with all these miracles, this is not a promise that Jesus will do exactly such a miracle in your life today. Rather, they're guarantees to us that One, Jesus does have the power to perform such miracles if he chooses. And two, that our eternal hope, our eternal hope is a future that has no sickness and a future where there is nothing demonic and a future where there is no chaos and a future where there is no death. And that's important because here and now, today, God is not a divine vending machine. We don't pray to him and a miracle comes out the other end. That's not how he works. God is not a machine. God is a person, and persons make choices. And God makes choices as he wisely orchestrates all of human history to bring it to where he wants it to go. But what is consistent, what is consistent about God is his character, and we'll see that today in in Jesus. But first of all, Jairus, he walks into into a large crowd of people, he finds Jesus, and he falls at his feet. Now, Jairus is a synagogue ruler. That means um, he's not a priest, but he is a leader. He's a respected person in the community. And nevertheless, this person of status and significance, he humbles himself by falling at Jesus' feet. Why does he do this? Well, it's an act of desperation, right? As a parent, you would far rather that something bad happened to you than anything happened to your children. And his child is so sick that she might die. And so right now, his social status, his pride, well, that's nothing compared to the life of his daughter. Have you ever been desperately worried for somebody else's life? 
probably the most scared I've ever been for one of my children was uh, for Malachi before he was born. Uh, we went to the usual ultrasounds. Normally that's super exciting, right? You get to see the baby's heart beating, you get to see, uh, you get to find out their gender. But then we got a message. There's something strange, could we please come in and talk to the doctor about it? And they were concerned about the ventricles in the brain, which the spaces in the brain, um, which I think are supposed to contain brain fluid, uh, but they were too large. They were too large. Uh, and that implied that maybe his brain hadn't developed enough. Instead, it was just this void. Now, ultrasounding is an imperfect science, and so they couldn't quite be sure of what they were seeing. It is possible, they said, his brain will grow to fill that space, but it might be possible that his brain hasn't developed properly and it won't grow to fill that space, which has all sorts of terrible connotations, but they just didn't know. And so a serious doctor sat Sarah down and told her about all these possible things that could go wrong and suggested that maybe terminating the pregnancy might be a good option. Uh, and it's a live issue for me, right, because I've known somebody whose daughter was, well, she was born with half a brain, effectively, and she died shortly after she was born. And there wasn't much that we could do. There wasn't anything we could do except wait and see and pray and cry a bit and pray some more. But when there's nothing else you can do, sometimes all you can do, the only thing left to do, is run to God. Now, I know that not every one of these stories has a happy ending, but if you've seen Malachi running around after church, then you'll know that God did answer our prayers, that um, a few weeks later we saw a second doctor who was much more comforting and level-headed, and said the first doctor was probably wrong to suggest termination. And as he grew and we prayed, his brain grew the way that it should. Um, Sarah blames my genetics. Apparently, he just had a big head, <laughs> and apparently he just needed more time for the brains to develop. Uh, look, God is good. God answered our prayers. But, yes, for desperate people in desperate situations, sometimes all you can do is turn to God, right? There's absolutely nothing else you can do. This woman, too, is in a desperate situation. She has this inexplicable medical condition. She's run out of clues. She's run out of hope. She's run out of money. Most likely, her bleeding is some form of menstrual hemorrhage. Friends have told me that even today, this sort of medical condition is not altogether uncommon and it has this massive impact on your, on your physical, on your emotional, on your social health. Not to mention that her medical condition almost certainly prevents her from having children, which has its entire other set of stigma in her, in her society. To add insult to injury, or maybe to add shame to her pain, there's a spiritual and a communal aspect to her problem as well. You see, in the first century, her physical condition, apart from all the other terrible things, it also excluded her from participating in the public worship of God. And let me explain by what I mean by taking a quick detour into the theology of Leviticus. Leviticus is, a, um, Leviticus is a book in the Old Testament that's most concerned with the formal worship of God, especially in the temple. Now, in a Levitical way of thinking, the world has four categories. So there's the holy. God is holy. Jesus is the holy one of Israel. And some of God's stuff, like the temple and the tabernacle, they're also holy. 
Now, everything else, everything else is common. Uh, and that's okay, it's okay to be common, but um, the common stuff is divided into two major categories, right? There's the clean, is that the right side? No, clean, there's the clean and the unclean. Um, what's the difference? Well, if you are clean, then you can approach the whole. You can come to God, you can pray, you can come to the temple and worship him. If you're unclean, then you cannot approach God. You're excluded. So what makes you unclean? Well, most significantly, sin makes you unclean. But there's a whole lot of other stuff too. If you touch a dead body, well, that makes you unclean. If you eat the wrong food, well, that makes you unclean. A wet dream can make you unclean. Sex makes you unclean. Blood makes you unclean. And so, it shouldn't surprise you that your monthly period, well, that makes you unclean. Now, if you're here and that makes you feel slightly uncomfortable because you're having a period or you're about to have your period or you will have your period in the future, well, there is good news because what we're talking about is the Old Testament, the old covenant way of approaching God. And stick with me because in point two, we'll talk about how Jesus brings in a new covenant and what the difference that makes on our side of the cross. But for this poor woman, for this poor woman here in the first century, she's been bleeding for 12 years. And that means she, as far as all of that goes, she's been ceremonially unclean for 12 years. For 12 years, she's been excluded from public worship. How would that make you feel? 12 years, not allowed to come to church. Everyone who looks at you says, stay away, I don't, I don't want to become unclean too. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of terrible things in the world, but I think exclusion is one of them, um, which is one of the reasons why um, sexism and racism and any ism that excludes people just is so um, frustrating. So imagine her desperation then, 12 years of being excluded. She is desperate. She is going to take any help she can get. And she's the one person who might be able to help her. It does seem to be more than desperation, though. She says, and she thinks to herself, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. There's a certainty about this. It suggests a genuine sort of faith. And if she's seen, if she's heard all of these things that Jesus has done, all these miracles that he's performed, then she's got something to base that off, doesn't she? Her faith. Her faith is solid foundation because he can heal her and he does heal her. And she's an example to us. Sorry. Um, and she had... And She's an example to us, and she's an example to Jairus, an example to all of us of faith, of coming to somebody and trusting that Jesus can, in fact, heal her. She can make her situation, he can make her situation better. Now, consider Jairus. There's a large crowd gathered around him. Um, and that in itself is daunting, right? There's a crowd around him, and I, I used to be a shy child. Talking to strangers can be confronting and scary. Crowds can be confronting. 
He's got to ignore what they're all saying. And then there's worse news. People come to him, they say, well, your daughter's dead. Your daughter's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Now, here would be really, really, really tempting to give up faith, right? Listen to conventional wisdom. I mean, look, Jesus is a healer, yes, but can any human possibly raise the dead? Is it even possible? On the other hand, he has Jesus talking to him, and Jesus says, ignoring what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. And that sounds really easy when we read it from, from this distance, but in the heat of the moment, trusting Jesus is a genuine test of faith, right? Because there are two certainties in life, right? Death and taxes. Dead is dead. And all of your friends are out there saying, just give up. And conventional wisdom says, just give up. Medicine says, give up. Dead people don't get up. Human history says, well, give up. The mourners in his house, sitting in his house, mocking him, saying, abandon all hope. Don't even bother the teacher anymore. But what does Jesus say? He says, just believe. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep holding out hope. Now, once again, not blind hope. It's not blind belief, right? Because Jesus, he can walk on water. He can cast out demons. He can still the storm. He can heal the paralytic. So Jesus is ignoring all the mockers who laugh at him and telling him not to bother. And the question for Jairus is, can he do the same? Well, can Jesus heal his daughter? And the answer is yes. Jesus is as good as his word. He raises the girl, the dead girl, to life. Just takes her by the hand, raises her up. Just as one day on the final day in the kingdom, in glory, Jesus will reach down to each of us and take you by the hand and raise you up. And we will stand up. And we will stand with him on that final day. To borrow some familiar words from Christmas, mild he lays his glory by, that is, Jesus sets aside his glory, comes to earth as a human being, as a baby. Māori lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. So, what does it mean for us? Well, Jesus is the one who heals. Jesus is the one who brings wholeness. He brings wellness. He brings peace. He's the one who takes away the pain. He's the one who takes away the shame. He takes away the fear. He takes away death itself. This is what he does. This is what he's going to do now and in the future. Not only does he fix things temporarily here as the king of kings, as the king of the kingdom of heaven, here is the kingdom coming and he will fix things permanently. Now Jesus' new kingdom is a big deal because it brings an entirely new way of dealing with things. Right, we talked about the bleeding woman and we talked about how in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, she would have been considered unclean and excluded from the temple worship. And she lived in a world where God was far away and we couldn't approach because we are unclean. We couldn't approach because we were sinful. But Jesus says, now there is a new kingdom. Now there is a new covenant. Now there's a new testament. In Mark chapter 7, he says, well, it's not what 
Um, what makes you unclean is not all the ceremonial law, it's not the washing or not washing, it's about what comes out of a person's heart that makes you unclean. And in this new covenant, because none of us can come and approach God and, and draw near to God, God draws near to us. In the old covenant, if a woman with her period touches a man, he becomes unclean. In the new covenant, this man Jesus touches this woman and he makes her clean. Jesus is God incarnate who comes as a human and he takes away all of our guilt, all of our shame. He takes away our uncleanness. He takes away our sin. He takes away anything and everything that stands between us and God. This is the good news of the new kingdom, of the kingdom of God that Jesus brings in. And so the reality of it that Jesus does bring healing even to our lives, even now he brings wholeness and wellness and cleanness so we can approach the God of heaven. Jesus sees My, um, my family is a massive fans of Encanto, the movie, and so we're always listening to the songs in our house. Now, I'm fascinated by musicals um, because, and, and the logic of the musicals because in the musicals, and only in musicals really, a song can start and two people hate each other and by the end of the song, the two people are in love. It's just how musical logic works. And one of my favourite little snippets in Encanto, it's not going to spoil it for you, but it happens towards the end. It's two little, tiny, two little side characters. They're almost unimportant to the story. And it's a love story that's told in the middle of all the other stuff that's going on in just two lines. Just two lines. Um, backstory, she's got superpowers, she's got super hearing, and she can hear a pin drop. But otherwise, no one ever pays attention to her. And he's a guy who never gets to finish sentences. I don't think he finishes one sentence in the whole movie. And he writes poetry at night that no one ever listens to. But she, she can hear him. And so here's the love story in two lines. He says, oh, you can't read that, but he says to her, I see you. And she says, and I hear... Sorry, she, yeah. <laughs> he says, I see you, and she says, I hear you. And then immediately after, he says, let's get married. And she says, slow down. <laughs> but that's a love story in two lines, right? I see you, I hear you. How remarkable it is to be seen. How remarkable it is to be heard. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking, right? To be ignored, to be shunned, to be excluded, to be forgotten. Never seen, never heard. But how wonderful it is to be seen and to be heard. How wonderful it is to be included. How wonderful it is to be part of the kingdom that Jesus brings, where... No longer, you're not unclean anymore, you're clean and you can come with everyone else and worship the God of heaven together. That's what Jesus does for us. And I don't know about you, but I want to come to this Jesus. So what, is, what does this passage teach us about how we should come to Jesus? Well, we have two people here in desperate situations. They come from different life situations. They have different problems, but... Here, here are some similarities that we can draw. Well, the first thing is they're both desperate. And so they come to Jesus because they have no other choice. Who else could you turn to? Two, they trust Jesus. They trust Jesus. 
Three, they come to Jesus and they fall at his feet, which I think is actually kind of remarkable. I think I even made a slide for it. Right, they both come and they just fall at his feet. Um, I don't think I've... I can't think of many times in life that you fall at anyone's feet. I think the only time I've done that is when I proposed. I mean, how many other people are worthy of you falling at their feet apart from... Um, but yes, apart from your wife and apart from Jesus. Um, and for they don't let anything else come between them. They don't let anything else come between them and coming to Jesus. What does desperation look like? Well, desperation means that they're coming to Jesus no matter what, no matter what gets in the way. And that can be a little bit daunting if you think about it. Right? There's a lot of things that come between us and Jesus, even now. Right? Do we approach Jesus no matter what? Do we let anything come in the way? Do we come to Jesus? Are we able to ignore that, the maddening crowd? Do we ignore the judgment from outsiders? Do we worry sometimes too much about what other people think, about what other think, people think about us believing in Jesus? Are we able to ignore all of the pressures of society and culture and family when it comes to us coming to Jesus? Are we able to ignore all those people who say, just don't bother? Why would you waste your entire Sunday staring up at the sky and instead you could be sailing on the harbour or playing sport or cycling on a Sunday morning? Do we ignore the laughter and the mockery from our friends who tell you not to believe in impossible things? Miracles, say the atheists, are impossible. A man rising from the dead, that's impossible. Why would you believe that? It's tempting, isn't it, to let that come between us and God? Or maybe for you, the voices are within. Maybe the discouraging voices are your own. And the voice inside your head says, you're not good enough. You haven't done enough. You haven't given enough. You're not good enough, God. Why would you even bother? Why would you bother the teacher? And that voice says to you, God, Jesus couldn't possibly love you or accept you. And even though we've heard what the Bible says, it's still tempting to think, well, I just I can't do it because of that, that hidden thing all those years ago that I've never told anyone. Because of the weakness of your flesh. Because that sin keeps coming back into your life, no matter how hard you try. Because your doubts just keep growing and they're circling in your head and you just can't escape them. And they just want to get between you and coming to God. Because you don't give enough, because you don't serve enough, because you keep failing again and again and again and again and again. And those sins keep coming back again and again and again. And because maybe you're sitting here feeling unclean even now. I tell you, Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. This, this is how you do it. Come as a desperate soul. Come with nothing else. Cast yourself at his feet. For this woman, maybe every other single person in her life looked at her with judgment. But Jesus looks at her and says, he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be free from your suffering. Friends, I say to you today, he sees you and he hears you. And he says to you, whoever you are, no matter what you've done, he says, son, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be free from your suffering. One final thing to add. What do we do if life is no longer desperate? 
Maybe you've been desperate and you've cast yourself at Jesus' feet, but it feels like life has returned to normal. The crisis is averted. The reality is still, I think, is this, I think, that a desperate life change requires a change of life. A desperate life change requires a change of life. Imagine if I had a heart attack. I'm in a desperate situation and I call out to those who can help me. And hopefully the paramedics arrive with their zapping machine and they revive me and I'm saved. Now, that situation should shape the rest of my life. I should stop smoking. I should start losing weight. I should stop drinking. I should start eating healthier. I should stop eating fast food. I should start taking cholesterol medication. A desperate situation should change the way I live. And friends, if it's been a while since you've come to Jesus, can I invite you to keep coming back to Jesus? Keep coming back to Jesus. Keep remembering how dark and desperate and difficult life was before Jesus. Remember all the shame that Jesus washes away. Remember the sin that Jesus cleanses you from and keeps cleaning you from every day, every hour, every minute. Remember that there's no one else who can wash you clean. There's no one else who can keep making you clean. Jesus sees you. Jesus hears you. And he loves you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for Jesus. We want to thank you that he's so good. We want to thank you that he's so kind. And even in a world where everyone else might judge us and we might judge ourselves, thank you that Jesus accepts us as we are. Thank you, Jesus, because without you, who else could we turn to? And yet, you can heal us and you can save us and you can make us clean. And what good news that is. Father, I want to pray for my friends here and even for myself as well. We know that our lives are often difficult and unclean and we often get so distracted with all the things that are going on that we forget to... How, we, how do we stand before you? And if we're on our, honest with ourselves, we sin and we sin and we keep sinning again. And we're not worthy, and yet you make us clean. Father, would you help us to have faith? Would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to keep washing us clean? And Father, we long for that day, that future day, where we will stand with Jesus, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. And come, Lord Jesus, come. That day can't come too soon. Amen.